Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis says the Biden administration is leaving the Coast Guard out to dry. This as it grapples with waves of immigrants coming by sea. More on that and the White House's response. Migrants seeking asylum began entering the U.S. with a mobile app yesterday. But can it keep up with demand? A Minnesota police chief says he wanted to honor law enforcement by posting a certain flag on Facebook. He had to delete it later after backlash from community members. Calls to end the U.S. COVID-19 emergency. Some public health officials recommend keeping it, but some lawmakers disagree. We hear a perspective as to whether or not it's still necessary. Chinese citizens are calculating the COVID-19 death toll in China, casting doubt on the official numbers. Meanwhile, videos indicate a booming funeral business in the country. Actor Alec Baldwin faces charges for the fatal shooting that occurred during the filming of the movie Rust. A New Mexico prosecutor today charged the actor and the film's armorer It comes after more than a year of investigation. Both are charged with involuntary manslaughter. And assistant director David Halls has signed a plea agreement for another charge, negligent use of a deadly weapon. Baldwin fired a live revolver while rehearsing on the set of the Western film Rust in October 2021. The film's cinephotographer was shot and killed. Baldwin denied responsibility for her death. He said live ammunition shouldn't have been allowed on the set. He added he was told the gun was cold, an industry term that means it was safe to use. Under New Mexico law, the maximum penalty for involuntary manslaughter is 18 months in jail and a $5,000 fine. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has a bone to pick with the Biden administration. He's unhappy about what he calls a refusal to handle the influx of illegal immigrants by sea. And the White House fired back. Entity's Daniel Monahan brings us more on the Sunshine State leader's concerns. Florida has been grappling with a flood of illegal immigrants attempting to cross the Straits of Florida from Cuba or Haiti. In response, DeSantis activated the National Guard. So we declared a state of emergency. We provided uh, Coast Guard the assistance that they've asked for. White House Press Secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre called the step by the Florida governor a political stunt. Governor DeSantis has made a mockery of, uh, of the system. The press secretary says DeSantis has put the lives of migrants who are coming here for a better life at risk. Speaking on Fox and Friends, Monroe County Sheriff Rick Ramsey hit back at the White House. Well, I think the political stunt is probably coming from Washington, D.C., and this is to deflect and pass it on somebody else. The reality is our governor in the state of Florida is not creating problems. He's trying to prevent a problem. According to DeSantis, the White House has left the Coast Guard out to dry. He says Biden is not sending any more vessels or support. DeSantis added that the problem is not just what the administration is doing at the border, but also the message it's sending. The rules don't matter. Just show up and you're fine. And you can't run a country like that. The governor says that Florida authorities have had to pick up the slack, just like Texas law enforcement at America's southern border. He says Tallahassee is engaging in reconnaissance and alerting the Coast Guard when boats are spotted. They are also stopping boats and working with the Coast Guard to handle the illegal immigrants, adding that the steps taken so far have had an effect. I think we've seen a decline in the number of vessels uh, that are in the water. We have not had as many landings. DeSantis says what they're doing is working as a deterrent, but he believes that smugglers and immigrants will start trying to change their tactics. 
The governor says Florida is going to be watching and will, quote, respond in kind. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. The U.S. Coast Guard says it is tracking a suspected Russian spy ship off the coast of Hawaii. The agency has been monitoring the Russian vessel for a few weeks and is now saying that it believes it is an intelligence-gathering ship. It noted that this is not unusual as many vessels freely pass through this zone, but it is tracking the situation closely. The Coast Guard says that it continues to coordinate with its Department of Defense partners, providing detailed updates. Migrants began entering the U.S. with the mobile app CBP-1 yesterday. The app is used as a screening step for appointments to request asylum. It's meant to facilitate the process, reduce risks, and discourage illegal border crossings. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the first day of entries using the app. The CBP-1 app allows migrants to enter their personal information and a photo to book appointments for asylum requests in the U.S. It was activated for pre-screening last week. Appointments can be booked at one of eight ports of entry in Texas, Arizona, and California. I came to help my family with this opportunity given to us by the U.S. if we are allowed to enter. I got into the system and here I am. Mexican officials and migrants say the demand is so high, the app is now telling applicants it's run out of appointments. Others say the app only had appointments available far from where they currently were. The only available one was Tijuana, so I have to go back there on the 25th. It's complicated. I don't have money and now I have to walk so I can arrive on the date I have to be there. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas says the app is designed to discourage people from congregating near the border and creating unsafe conditions. Since April, I've been trying to get here. I feel very excited. I'm waiting for the best to be able to enter in a legal manner. Some migrant advocacy groups want the U.S. to provide more appointments to reduce risks. Mexican authorities found over 250 migrants traveling inside a tractor trailer in the southern state of Chiapas on Wednesday. They were given food, water, legal advice, and medical and psychological care before being put under the custody of the National Migration Institute. Authorities say most were from Guatemala, others were from El Salvador, Ecuador, and Honduras. Twenty were unaccompanied minors. The man driving the tractor trailer was arrested after trying to escape and handed over to federal authorities. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. President Biden has departed for a tour around California. Storms have pummeled the state, causing widespread flooding as well as mudslides. Footage shows the president leaving the White House and boarding a military chopper. His visit begins in Santa Clara County, and then he'll head south to San Francisco. The trip will include at least two stops on the Santa Cruz coast. That's one of the areas hit the hardest by the storms. Flash floods and extreme tides have inundated low-lying communities. At least 20 people died in the three-week-long bout of storms, and thousands of residents were ordered to evacuate. Biden has approved federal disaster assistance for the three hardest-hit counties in northern and central California. The heavy rains have helped ease the state's historic drought and replenish fresh water sources, but experts warn that much of the state remains in dry conditions. A Minnesota police chief is apologizing after posting the so-called thin blue line flag. He says his intention was to honor law enforcement, but for some, the flag has a very different meaning. Virgil Green is the police chief for the city of Golden Valley, Minnesota. An apology he posted last week is now making national headlines. 
He originally posted the Thin Blue Line flag on Facebook as the department celebrated National Law Enforcement Appreciation Day. However, some were offended by the flag. The original post has been deleted, so it's not clear exactly how people responded. But the apology reads in part, For many, the Thin Blue Line flag has always represented a way to honor the commitment we make as first responders to protect our community. He continued, It is disappointing that in recent years, the flag's positive intention has been tarnished with divisive undertones and actions. We do not want to promote these negative connotations. The police chief linked an article called The Short Fraught History of the Thin Blue Line American Flag for people to learn more. However, after apologizing, a different group of people reacted, those who support the police. One user commented, why in the world would you apologize? You're not in the wrong on this issue. With another one saying, I have attended way too many funerals of my brothers and sisters who have died protecting the thin blue line for the right reasons. According to the Daily Wire, the police chief who posted the flag was actually the town's first black police chief hired in order to combat racism. The incident represents a nationwide trend. Just last week, the Los Angeles Police Department removed the flag from one of its stations because of one complaint that connected the flag to the Proud Boys. LA's police chief told Fox 11, it's unfortunate that extremist groups have hijacked the use of the thin blue line flag to symbolize their undemocratic, racist, and bigoted views. He added that he doesn't see the flag that way himself. The COVID-19 public health emergency has been in place for about three years. Now there are calls from Congress to end it. We hear some analysis on whether it should be continued or not and how it affects the U.S. health care system and Medicaid. Joining us to discuss is senior fellow at the Hoover Institution of Stanford, Dr. Scott Atlas. Dr. Atlas was also a special advisor and member of the White House Coronavirus Task Force under President Trump. Great to have you on the show, Dr. Atlas. Thanks for having me. Can you tell us some specific reasons as to whether the bill by House Republicans to end the COVID-19 public health emergency is a good or bad idea? Well, it's a good idea because, and it's unfortunately necessary. We have a definition of emergency that most people would understand as sudden, unexpected, and temporary. And what we see in this is uh, really almost uh, a Kafka-esque extension of a public health emergency for years beyond when it should have been stopped. This emergency, we don't see any evidence of hospital overcrowding. The virus uh, is in a form that is far less lethal than it was. The 90% of people in the United States have had COVID. The high risk people have all been, almost all been vaccinated. I mean, this kind of uh, really a distortion of what a public health emergency is, is a, is, is a significant problem and it has led to a huge amount of mistrust in public health guidance by the American people. You can't have an unending emergency when there is no reason for this emergency declaration other than maintaining control of people and allowing circumvention of normal standards. I'll give you an example, uh, just the emergency use authorization for this experimental vaccine in young children that was granted it toward the end of 2022, when there is no public health emergency for COVID for children. Uh, I mean, this is really sort of uh, almost inexplicable. And, and we need to unfortunately have, have legislation to end it. 
Yes, we have seen the advent of many variants, but like you said, the high risk have been vaccinated. HHS Secretary Javier Becerra said last week that the White House decided to renew the emergency after consultation with public health officials. Why would these public health officials suggest its renewal? And in your view, are they acting in the best interest of the American people? Well, they're not acting in the best interests of the American people. Uh, you know, we have had public health officials uh, really lose credibility because they're denied, they've denied fact all along about this. They've been wrong, denied fundamental biology about the protection from having an infection, about the inefficacy of masks, about the uh, really harms of the lockdown. It wasn't standard to even do lockdown. Downs. Closing schools has destroyed our children. These people really have destroyed all credibility in public health. You know, and but you have to wonder why are people ignoring that Florida has been living normally for two and a half years? Now, what impact does this emergency have on the U.S. healthcare system, hospitals, and telehealth services? Well, it's good that telehealth has been increased uh, in its use and acceptance, but this shouldn't have required a public health emergency to do. Uh, telehealth uh, has been used uh, successfully for years, so this is sort of a, a hidden positive of, of, of all these really debacles of this healthcare situation over the last couple of years, that the positive uh, impact on the use of public of the telemedicine. Uh, you know, eligibility for uh, government insurance, Medicaid, uh, you know, to, frankly, to have a, a, a declaration of an emergency to circumvent standard eligibility requirements. It's just not the way the system is supposed to work. And Dr. Atlas, I do want to talk about Medicaid. If this emergency does end, what is the impact on how states determine Medicaid eligibility? Well, you know, Medicaid eligibility, the, the Medicaid system is frankly severely flawed. What we should do is make Medicaid patients have the same access, choice, and quality of care as people that are paying private, that have private insurance. I'm for a system that changes so that low-income families uh, get to use that kind of money toward private insurance so that they get to see the same doctors that you or I see. So this is, this is a bigger topic, uh, but you don't invoke an emergency just to add people on to uh, government insurance, particularly when the government insurance is bad. It doesn't Very make great. sense, really. Very great to have your analysis. Senior fellow at the Hoover Institution of Stanford, Dr. Scott Atlas, pleasure having you on the show today. Okay, thanks for having me. The clock is ticking on the nation's debt ceiling drama. The U.S. is expected to reach its borrowing cap today. And after that happens, the Treasury Department will start enacting extraordinary measures to postpone a default. The $31.4 trillion U.S. debt limit is hovering over Washington, D.C. If I'm president of the United States and I want to be responsible, I do not want a gun pointed at my head every time the debt ceiling comes up. The debt limit established by Congress is the maximum amount that the federal government can borrow to pay its bills. Once breached, the U.S. will eventually start to default on loans, possibly affecting Social Security payments, veterans' benefits, and federal employee pay. We've always paid our bills, and if we stop doing that, you're going to have an economic uh, catastrophe. The Biden administration is calling on lawmakers in D.C. to come up with a solution. It is essential for Congress to recognize that dealing with the debt ceiling is their constitutional responsibility. This is an easy one. This is something that should be happening without conditions. 
But some Republicans say the White House should reduce its own spending. But if you had a child and you gave them a credit card and they kept raising it and they hit the limit, so you just raised it again, clean increase, and again and again, would you just keep doing that or would you change the behavior? The Treasury Department can take measures to give Congress and President Biden until around June to come up with an agreement. It's a classic case of chicken or the egg, except this time it's to figure out which one is better to buy. With egg prices continuing to soar, up 60% according to the Bureau of Labor, many people have taken to buying and raising chickens instead. But the CDC is warning people that your own backyard flock carries some health risks, sometimes even leading to death. Backyard poultry can have salmonella that spreads to the areas where other birds live and onto other people's clothes, hands, or shoes. That in turn can cause the people around them to become sick. The Centers for Disease Control says backyard chicken coops have been connected to over a thousand people becoming sick with salmonella over the past year. The CDC has listed on their website ways to keep people safe when owning chickens. And coming up, Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin says the Ford plant proposal he turned down would serve as a front for the Chinese Communist Party. That's due to Ford's Chinese partner. We have that and more just after this break. The U.S. government has a surveillance program with a database of over 150 million money transfers. It tracks transfers over $500 between people in the U.S. and recipients in over 20 other countries. This according to internal documents and an investigation by Senator Ron Wyden. The surveillance program is located at the Transaction Record Analysis Center, or TRAC for short. It was set up by Arizona's Attorney General in 2014. Its purpose was to fight drug and human trafficking between Mexico and the U.S. The program started out small, but has expanded since then. Now hundreds of agencies have access to the database. This includes federal agencies like the FBI, the DEA, and ICE. State and local law enforcement agencies can also get access to it, all without court oversight. The data is collected from money transfer firms like MoneyGram, Western Union, and RIA. Millions of people use these services to transfer money. Senator Wyden says the program is federally funded and wants the Justice Department to investigate. He called it an all-you-can-eat buffet of Americans' personal financial data, bypassing normal protections for privacy. Tracks director says the program stops drug cartels from laundering money. He says it has directly resulted in hundreds of leads and busts and helps find patterns in the flow of money linked to criminal activity. Angry customers vented on social media yesterday about problems with their Bank of America and Zelle accounts. Some users said their money vanished from their accounts. They complained about a lack of information from either company about what went wrong. Zelle is a payment platform that millions of people use to send and receive money. The company says the problem is on Bank of America's side. According to an NPR report, one user shared that Bank of America had magically disappeared a large Zelle transaction that they had already used to pay bills. The user said their checking account was now in debt and they couldn't get a hold of anyone to help them, while another user said he was missing $1,300. He was told to call customer service, but said customer service wasn't assisting him. Bank of America says the problem has now been resolved. Mobile messenger WhatsApp has to pay $5.95 million. 
Ireland's Data Privacy Commissioner fined the app today for a breach of the European Union's privacy laws. The regulator told WhatsApp to reassess how it uses personal data. It issued a similar order this month to Facebook and Instagram. The regulator warned Meta, the parent company of all three platforms, to reassess how data is used for targeted advertising. WhatsApp said it intended to appeal the decision and that it strongly believed that the way its service operates is both technically and legally compliant. The regulator directed WhatsApp to bring its operations into compliance within six months. It has fined parent company Meta 1.3 billion euros to date and has 10 other inquiries open into its services. Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin is responding to criticism over his decision not to compete for a Ford battery plant. He says the plant proposal would serve as a front for the Chinese Communist Party. Youngkin believes the deal could compromise Virginians' economic security and personal privacy. Ford's partner is the China-based Contemporary Amperex Technology. Their agreement to supply batteries for Ford's electric vehicles would qualify them to receive lucrative production tax benefits, this under the new Inflation Reduction Act. In August 2022, 16 Republicans on the House Oversight Committee warned about the Chinese firm. They say it's influential within the Chinese regime. Democrats say the $3.5 billion factory would have created over 2,500 jobs in southern Virginia. They also question whether the national security concern over Ford's China-based partner is legitimate. The Chinese battery company has nine billionaires on the Forbes billionaires list. That's more than any other publicly traded company. Youngkin said that the risks related to the CCP are common sense. He called the CCP, quote, a dictatorial political party that only has one goal, global dominance at the expense of the United States. And talking about China, a former researcher at the University of Kansas has been sentenced for hiding his ties with the Chinese regime. Fung Franklin Tao was found guilty of one count of making a false statement. He was involved in a Chinese talent program. As part of the program, Tao traveled to China to set up a laboratory and recruit staff for a Chinese university. But on conflict of interest forms and grant applications for federal funding, he failed to disclose his involvement. He also told the University of Kansas that he was in Germany instead. Tao was arrested in 2019. He was sentenced on Wednesday to time served without fine or restitution. Alabama has withdrawn from a voter registration data sharing group. It was the first official act in office from Alabama's recently elected Secretary of State. Republican Wes Allen made the promise to voters to withdraw from the Electronic Registration Information Center on the campaign trail last year. The center is a partnership between 32 states and the District of Columbia. It says it identifies out-of-date records found by comparing voter registration data between states to motor vehicle licensing agency data and to the Social Security Administration Master Death Index list. Allen expressed concern over the organization having access to the private data of Alabama citizens. Alabama's former Secretary of State, John Merrill, said the system was used to protect the integrity of Alabama's elections as recently as the 2022 midterms. If former President Trump were to go head-to-head with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis in a run for president, who would win? A new poll suggests it would be Trump. The poll from the Morning Consult released yesterday had Trump up by 17 points. Trump came in at 48 percent. DeSantis had 31 percent. Trump's favorability rating in the poll has improved over the last month. It's now up to 77 percent. Close to 7 in 10 hold a favorable view of DeSantis.
Other polls since the midterms have DeSantis a lot closer to Trump. Some even have him in the lead. DeSantis has not announced a presidential run. In New York State, a terrifying moment caught on camera. A woman was rescued from a burning car after a crash on the Long Island Expressway on Monday. The woman in the video was 56-year-old Susan Denise of Farmingville, New York. Multiple people are seen helping her out of the burning vehicle and onto the expressway for safety. Local media said Denise was driving a Jeep Liberty on the expressway when it hit the median, flipped on its side, and caught fire. Multiple witnesses flipped the car right side up and got Denise out of the vehicle. She was transported to a local hospital in critical condition. And just ahead, a Chinese Communist Party official has sparked outrage on the internet. That's after he called millions of COVID-19 deaths no big deal. China paints an optimistic vision at the World Economic Forum, saying its growth will recover in 2023. We'll have the details soon when we return. Good to have you back with us. Now going to the ongoing COVID crisis in China. New calculations give an indication of the country's true death toll, and a CCP official's comments are coming under fire. Entity's Ellie Hart reports. How just many have died from COVID-19 in China? No one knows for sure, but some internet users in China are doing their own math and casting doubt on Beijing's official numbers. Here's one example. China's top health body says about 60,000 died of the virus between December 8th last year and January 12th this year. But the figure is significantly lower than estimates of the virus death toll in Beijing, a single city. Here's the calculation. Funeral homes in Beijing are capable of cremating 3,600 people per day when they're running full capacity. So within these 36 days, funeral homes in Beijing could cremate over 120,000 dead bodies. On average, about 330 people die of natural causes per day in Beijing, so over 11,000 could die of natural deaths during the same period. Removing that number from the estimate, at least 100,000 could have died from the virus in Beijing, one single city in China. During this time, funeral homes in Beijing were running at full capacity. The biggest funeral home in Beijing told Radio Free Asia that crematoriums were working around the clock. Despite that pace, some people have reported wait times up to six days for a slot to cremate their loved ones. Videos circulating online show funeral-related business is booming in China. In one video clip, workers are seen making batches of new caskets. In another part of the factory, workers add finishing touches to newly made ones. Another video shows workers loading new caskets onto a truck for delivery. Still another captures fully loaded trucks ready to hit the road. One of the videos was uploaded along with the caption. It explains the clip shows a batch of new crematory furnaces and that they're ready to be delivered to a funeral home in Fuzhou, a city in southeastern China. Other footage reveals how some in China are touring new cemeteries. A man said in the video that sales of these cemeteries are going well. One video shows stacks of new funeral bags in stock. At the same time, a related screenshot captured on social media group chats discussion. In it, a business owner says she's getting order inquiries for tens of millions of body bags per day, but she can't accept or fill the orders because clients are asking for delivery of the bags in just half a month. 
A Chinese Communist Party official is triggering anger among Internet users. That's as funeral homes across China are overwhelmed and people are mourning their loved ones. Jiang works at a renowned university in Beijing, serving as deputy director of the propaganda department for the university's party committee. Worth noting, the majority of universities in China have internal departments that function as branches of the Chinese Communist Party. Over the weekend, he shared a post on Chinese social media. In it, he wrote that he had expected millions of people in China to die of COVID-19, saying, quote, so what if millions of people die? He cited how China's 2021 death toll reached 10 million, adding that 5 million more, quote, wouldn't be a big deal. He also questioned why the number is considered unacceptable. His remarks sparked a huge amount of criticism on social media platform Weibo. Comments on the post have since been censored. Economic growth and avoiding global recession. These issues are topping the agenda at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. That's against a backdrop of war in Ukraine and worries over climate issues. When it comes to China, it's not about the threats imposed by the communist country or intellectual property theft or unfair trade practices. It's about how some countries believe China can bring hope to the global economy after three years of lockdowns and strict COVID-19 rules. This, as some of the world's largest economies struggle to overcome a downturn. At the meeting on Tuesday, Chinese Vice Premier Liu tried to assure investors and other economies that China is still a good place to do business. He laid out an optimistic vision, saying if Chinese people work hard enough, China's growth will most likely return to its normal trend this year. He added that China expects to buy more from other countries and receive more investment from them, too. He also said China would return to pre-pandemic consumption habits over the coming months. If that happens, the shift would benefit foreign companies. Top finance officials at the forum welcome China's change in pandemic policy. The CEO of American investment bank Citigroup called China's opening up good news for the global market. While the CEO for Chinese travel company Trip.com said the company is working with airlines to raise tourism numbers back to normal by the third quarter. By Q3, we hope uh, the capacity will be back to normal. Likewise, the company says it's trying to help Chinese travelers heading abroad. Staying in the east, at least eight people were killed by an avalanche in Tibet. It took place in the southwestern region of Tibet on Tuesday. The avalanche hit a highway near a tunnel exit and overturned many cars. Authorities sent 131 people and 28 vehicles to the scene overnight. They're helping to recover bodies and the missing. Chinese authorities didn't say how many people were missing and gave no further details. Tibet is a remote and mountainous region. Avalanches can happen frequently. The city close to the scene of the incident has an elevation of roughly 10,000 feet above sea level. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And coming up, thousands protest during a meeting of the French president and Spanish prime minister. They seek independence for the Catalan regions of France and Spain and protests and a strike in France after the government announced an increase in retirement age. More shortly here on NTD News Today. The Swedish government announced a new package of military aid to Ukraine. It includes armored infantry fighting vehicles and the Archer artillery system. 
The package is worth $419 million and will also include portable anti-tank weapons, mine-clearing equipment, and assault rifles. Sweden's prime minister said, quote, Ukraine's victory in this war is of almost indescribable importance. He added that Ukraine is fighting for the freedom of all of Europe. Sweden will send about 50 of its tracked and armored Type 90 infantry fighting vehicles. They can transport up to eight infantry soldiers each and are equipped with automatic cannons. Sweden will also send an undisclosed number of its 48 archer vehicle-mounted self-propelled gun howitzer systems. Ukraine has long expressed an interest in adding some to its arsenal. Elsewhere in Europe, thousands protest ahead of a Spain-France summit in Barcelona. They're Catalan separatists, and they want independence from both countries. The demonstrators waved pro-independence flags and held signs reading, Neither Spain nor France. As Spanish Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez and French President Emmanuel Macron met in Catalonia's capital. At the French consulate in Barcelona, some separatists clashed with police when they tried to reach the square where the Catalan regional government is located. Catalonia launched a failed independence bid in 2017. The leader of the attempt to separate from Spain is in self-imposed exile in Belgium to avoid prosecution. Spain's Supreme Court dropped sedition charges against him after a reform of the country's penal code, but he still faces other charges. We now have more on the nursing strikes in the U.K. NTD's Malcolm Hudson sent us this report from outside King's College Hospital in London. Today and tomorrow, around one in four hospitals are affected by the Royal College of Nursing walkouts. Nurses are striking in a prolonged dispute over pay. They're asking for a 19% raise to keep their wages rising above the rate of inflation. The government, however, says this is asking too much. But for the nurses here, it's not just about the money. The real issue strikes deeper and into the very heart of their profession. The nurses I spoke to told me that people are leaving the profession due to low pay. And university students are avoiding nursing for the same reason. This is leaving hospitals heavily understaffed. So before, in the wards, we used to be one nurse to four patients. And now it's like 1 to 10, 1 to 15. And some, some other hospitals are like 1 to 20. That's not fair. It's like you're risking your own registration, you're risking the safety of those patients. You're not going to be able to provide the best quality care for your patients anymore. There are more than 47,000 nursing vacancies. Overworked and underpaid, nurses are feeling incredibly stressed. Health and wellbeing manager Laura Duffel told me that her department was created specifically to offer support to staff. Nurses go into the profession because they care and they want to make things better for people. Um, at the moment that's not happening and I think m- most nurses go into work at the moment scared. Uh, we have nurses crying um, most shifts because of how exhausted they are and how um, challenging things are and the fact that they don't feel like they're able to look after their patients. They don't feel like they're good, giving good care. Doffel said going on strike is one of the hardest decisions they've had to make. Nurses are conflicted between the need to look after patients and the need to look after themselves. Clinical nurse specialist Wendy Martin said they are making sure they still care for their patients. Even though we're out on strike, we have made sure that there is safe staffing within the hospital and within all the patient areas um, that enable us to be out here. Many people might be here on their days off 
um, or there were lots of people here this morning after night shifts who came and joined uh, the picket line to have their voices heard, but it didn't impact patient care. And so so they've come straight from work, they haven't slept? Yes, there were many down here, especially first thing this morning, that had come straight from a 12-hour night shift to join the picket line so that they could add their voice and their support and be heard. Um, some of them have subsequently gone home because they have to come back and work tonight as well. But yes, nurses feel so strongly that they did actually come down and stay after night shifts. This strike is not simply about pay. Money is the main point of the discussion, but ultimately it's to better provide safe and effective care for patients. Malcolm Hudson, NTD News, London. In the UK, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's government this week blocked Scotland's gender recognition reform bill from becoming law. The legislation, which passed through the Scottish Parliament in December, would make it easier for people to change gender legally, including removing the need for a medical diagnosis. But it's now been vetoed. NTD's Jane Worrell has more. The government has vetoed Scotland's gender reforms. Constitutionally, this is significant. It's the first time a Section 35 order has been used. That's where Westminster can prevent something that's already been passed in Scottish Parliament from becoming law. But it's not just the constitutional issues that people are concerned about. It's what's inside this particular piece of Scottish legislation. It's intended to make it easier for someone to legally change their gender. So this would have lowered the age of people to be able to do this to 16 years old and it would have reduced the waiting times and removed the need for a medical diagnosis. The Scotland Secretary said that the law was vetoed because of legal implications, saying it would have a serious impact on UK equalities laws. That the bill would have a serious adverse impact, among other things, on the operation of the Equality Act 2010. Those adverse effects include impacts on the operation of single-sex clubs, associations and schools and protections such as equal pay. People in favour of the bill say it would make it simpler for people who identify as trans to be legally recognised. People opposing the bill say it's a step too far and are concerned that predatory men could exploit the laws to access single-sex spaces. There are also concerns people who change their legal gender in Scotland would have a different legal gender in the rest of the UK. Questioned on it earlier, the Prime Minister defended the UK government's decision. There have been 347 acts passed by the Scottish Parliament, which is undeniably one of the most powerful devolved legislatures anywhere in the world. In this exceptional case, it's clear that the Act does have adverse consequences for UK-wide equalities legislation. So in those very exceptional circumstances, the Scottish Secretary has regretfully taken the decision to block passage of the legislation. But as I said previously, we want to engage in a dialogue with the Scottish Government to ensure that we can find a constructive way through. Sturgeon has called the move a full frontal attack on Scottish democracy. Well, the Scottish Government may choose to amend the gender bill or could challenge Westminster in court. Jane Worrell, NTD News, London. Now over to France, where the government could raise the retirement age by two years. The proposed move has angered French workers, leading to a day of nationwide strikes. Here's the story. Guillaume Conrad works in Paris' sewers to supervise emergency cleaning and repair work. He loves the job, but it's tough, and he's not happy with the government's new plan to make him work longer. Authorities announced the French will have to work two years more than planned to 64 before retiring. 
For Conrad, that sounds a lot, mainly when his work sees him crouching in dark tunnels filled with overflowing fecal matter and rats. It's a profession that is still extremely exposed to danger. The danger is everywhere and it's specific. If we did a survey on working conditions and we want to see the worst of them, I think that in the sanitation network we have everything. Prime Minister Elizabeth Bourne said from 2027, French people will need to have worked 43 years to get a full pension. The government says this is needed to balance the accounts. Trade unions rejected the argument and have vowed a tough fight to stop the reform. Conrad said he will take to the streets in a nationwide day of strikes on January 19th, along with some of his co-workers. One of them is 53-year-old Stéphane. He's worked in Paris's 24-7 emergency sewage repair team for 25 years. It's going to be very, very complicated to manage because we have all these constraints. It's already an issue to retire late, and if we add another two years to that, it'll be extremely hard to accept. And I don't really see how we're going to be able to do it. We really suffer at the physical level. We really suffer. Conrad's team can currently retire at 52 due to how hard their job is and provided they work their full career there. The new system would see their retirement age rise to 54. Sewer works in some other cities and supervisors like Conrad don't get the early retirement option. Now a development in the case of a former member of the European Parliament who is at the center of a cash-for-influence corruption scandal. Pierre-Antonio Panzeri told prosecutors he will work with the authorities in exchange for a reduced sentence. It's a win-win principle. The suspect gains something because, compared to the maximum punishment which they might otherwise have received, his sentence is lighter, though it's still, I repeat, a real punishment. Italian Panzeri was charged last month with corruption, money laundering, and membership of a criminal organization. He has now signed a memorandum in which he repents for his acts. According to a Belgian arrest warrant, Panzeri is suspected of intervening politically with members working at the European Parliament for the benefit of Qatar and Morocco in exchange for payment. Both countries have denied the allegations. Panzeri, a former socialist lawmaker, set up a campaign group dubbed Fight Impunity that was believed to have been a front for the scheme. And still to come, ahead a hospital outside Chicago, a five-foot-tall robot with blue eyes provides much-needed assistance. We bring you what the robot can do and how much time it saves for nurses. An Australian charity is taking its services to the road and helping communities in need. Stay tuned for more on that when we return. Welcome back. Medical centers across the country continue struggling with a nursing shortage. A hospital system just outside of Chicago is turning to futuristic technology to fill the need. Entity's Andrew Thomas has the details on the robotic residents. At Elmhurst Memorial Hospital, a five-foot-tall robot with blue eyes roams the hallways. Its name is Moxie. We've got two robots in the hospital, and between the two, they are working 24-7 um, with only a short period of time to charge in between. So when you think about the numbers to staff humans to do that work, we would need at least six people to do that amount of work. Texas-based Diligent Robotics created the machines. The robots run errands for hospital workers. 
That way they can spend more time attending to patients. Moxie has been operating around the clock at Elmhurst Memorial Hospital since June 2022. Supplies and medications and other things that we need from other areas of the hospital, she's able to move those around for us very easily. According to the hospital, the two robots made about 1,800 deliveries in a month. They traveled nearly 1,000 miles and saved hospital staff over 2 million steps. During a six-month period, Moxie saved over 3,100 hours of time for the medical team. A lot of times I was the one kind of running around the hospital picking everything up and you put on a lot of miles working in a hospital doing all that walking around, especially one like Elmhurst that's very long. So uh, definitely saving us steps, which is very helpful in keeping us at the bedside and not taking us away from our patients. So really, really helpful. Andrea Tomas is CEO and co-founder of Diligent Robotics. She says they spent years doing research trials with four hospitals before bringing Moxie to market. She believes their product is part of the future of healthcare. You know, people are seeing a robot in their environment for the first time. Um, and so you do see that kind of disbelief, but then um, it's interesting how quickly people are like, oh yeah, okay, we're there now, I got it. <laughs> um, and so I think it's really, it's really the way it's gonna be. Diligent Robotics says dozens of Moxies are hard at work across the country, and there are more to come as they try to meet the demand. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. The world is reeling from inflation not seen in decades, and many budgets are taking a hit. In Hobart, the capital of the Australian island state, Tasmania, a charity is upping its services to help more of those struggling to make ends meet. Loading frozen meals and packed food into a white van, volunteers of Hobart City Mission are taking their service to the road. So if we're able to provide food for one or two nights, yep. Bringing support of daily necessities, the charity visits Hobart and two surrounding communities once a week. Demand for charity is rising in the region as inflation and soaring cost of living hit locals' budgets. Bring it out to the near, you know, to the satellite um, areas is important because not everybody can get into Hobart. Census data shows that rent has been increasing in both communities. In one of them, 40% of tenants are in a rental stress situation, meaning they are paying more than 30% of their income for housing. In another, 37% are living under stress. That compares with 33% in central Hobart. Once the word gets out, they'll be lined up around the corner. Along with other residents, Lee Woolley came to pick up food for her daughter. She's noticed in the last, say, four weeks to five weeks that her grocery bill's gone up nearly $150. Hobart City Mission hopes to build a better picture of the level of need in regional communities. We need to get out into those communities more and, and talk to the people who are around, um, talk to some of the support services. Their road service began as a six-month trial. If demand is there, it could be expanded to other regional communities as well. Coming up, a show of peace and unity. That's what Pennsylvania officials said after watching Shen Yun performing arts. Details to come on NTD News Today. Shen Yun Performing Arts has touched the hearts of audiences around the world, and some audience members in Pittsburgh have shown their gratitude in a special way. Let's take a look. Pennsylvania State Senator Patrick Stefano attended a Shen Yun Performing Arts show on January 15th in Pittsburgh. 
I brought today my uh, certificate for appreciation for what you've done, what you've created here and the emotion and the imagery and the message all tied together. I, I really appreciate that on behalf of the Pennsylvania State Senate. I thank you for what you've done. Joining him, State Senator Devlin Robinson, State Representative Jessica Benham, and the community advisor for Pittsburgh's mayor. Did not disappoint. I loved everything from the, the costume design to the passion of the performers to uh, the orchestra. Uh, it was everything was top notch. The orchestra was lovely. You know, I come from a musical family, and so to hear the combination of the Western and the Eastern instruments, beautiful harmonies, it was it was beautiful. What impressed me the most is, is how everybody worked together, synchronizing. Uh, the costumes were beautiful. Uh, what they were able to bring in terms of their energy and passion, how they performed was very very impressive. Shen Yun is a dance group based in New York. They aim to bring back China's 5,000 years of civilization through classical Chinese dance and music. I love the fact that it's a movement you're creating, and, and it's like a double entendre there. You're with the, your dance movement, but you're creating another movement to show that we can have peace and unity through art. One of the things I take away from it is that we're all our people here on this earth. And to see some of the beauty and the pageantry of the Chinese culture just shows that you're my brother and my sister as well. We're all one family. Despite Shen Yun's efforts to revive Chinese culture, the group isn't able to perform in communist China today. I'm so impressed that you're doing this, to revive a, a culture and an art form that, uh, and pushing back against uh, a, a political pressure through arts and culture, I think it's amazing. So it's a great way to revitalize the past. Goes to show you what uh, what people can do whenever they're um, whenever they're actually able to be free and and uh, express their feelings. Shen Yun performed for three full houses in Pittsburgh. NTD News, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Now to Los Angeles, the city is host to a delicious kind of world record. Pizza Hut is celebrating the return of their New Yorker pizza. It's commemorating the event by making what may be the world's largest pizza. But will it be? Let's take a look. Here's Entity's Cost MS. Pizza Hut has set out to break the record for the world's largest pizza. Yeah, we're here at the Los Angeles Convention Center and we're breaking a world record for the world's largest pizza today. And, and we're doing that to celebrate the return of the Big New Yorker, which is our largest pizza, so we wanted to make the world's largest pizza to celebrate it. The Mega Pizza has a surface area of over 14,000 square feet. It's made with over 13,500 pounds of dough, nearly 5,000 pounds of pizza sauce, over 8,800 pounds of cheese, and over 630,000 slices of pepperoni. Pizza Hut President David Graves says he and his team have been preparing and planning how to make the pizza for months. You know, Pizza Hut has a history of making first, right? We were the first to deliver a pizza. We we're the first to take an order over the internet. We've always done big, exciting things. The pizza was made using rectangular slices of pizza dough, which were laid next to each other to form the base. Pizza sauce was then painted onto the dough before adding cheese and pepperoni. The pizza was then cooked by a cooking device hovering over it. None of the pizza will go to waste either. It will produce around 68,000 slices, 
which will be donated to food banks and local charities. Cost MNS, NTD News. The world's oldest dated runestone has been discovered in Norway, and archaeologists say it has a mysterious inscription from up to 2,000 years ago. Researchers at the University of Oslo's Museum of Cultural History found the stone in 2021 while investigating a burial ground in eastern Norway. Scientists used burned bones and charcoal from the cremation pit where it was discovered to date the writing. They estimate it was carved into the sandstone boulder between 1 and 250 AD. The stone features an unexpected mixture of thinly cut, shallow runes, rune-like characters, and other visual motifs. Some inscriptions are zigzag-shaped, while others form a grid pattern. The museum said interpreting the messages is a challenging task. That's because the way of writing inscriptions varied and the language changed considerably over time. Antarctica's largest mountain, Mount Vincent, is over 16,000 feet tall, and an ultra-runner just became the first person ever to reach the summit by running. Brazilian ultra-runner Fernanda Maciel achieved this feat on Christmas Eve 2022. The 42-year-old completed a running ascent of Mount Vincent. All previous successful attempts to scale the Antarctic Massif were achieved by mountaineers or ski mountaineers. Maciel's climb also set a new speed record of 9 hours and 41 minutes. She had to overcome temperatures of minus 31 degrees Fahrenheit, brutal winds, exposed mountain ridges, as well as altitude sickness, a broken crampon, and frozen goggles. That's all for today's program. We're really glad to have you with us. Please send us an email if you'd like to tell us something. We're going to put it on screen. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.